0: Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine.
1: I'm Jeffrey Hayes. It's Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. To help guide us in a discussion on this is Dr. Stephen Spandorfer. He's Associate Professor at the Center for Reproductive Medicine and Infertility at Cornell University Medical Center and is also the chair of the Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Special Interest Group. Of the american society for reproductive medicine dr spandorfer thanks for coming back on asrm today
0: thank you very much for having me it's a pleasure to be here pleasure to be able to talk about pregnancy loss it's a very important discussion i think we'll have
1: absolutely according to the cdc one in four women are affected by pregnancy and infant loss Could you take a moment to break that down a bit more for our listeners? For example, are we just talking about infant loss in terms of stillbirths? What can you illuminate us on here?
0: Sure. Well, pregnancy loss is actually probably, first of all, much more common than most people actually realize. It is one of those sort of hidden things that most people never talk about when they have a miscarriage. They sort of pull within themselves and then just sort of keep it quiet and keep it on the down low. Don't actually talk about it with other people. Reality is, is that pregnancy loss is very, very common. It depends on how early you look. I mean, basically the earlier a pregnancy occurs, the more likely there's going to be a loss as you go further along in the late second trimester, third trimester, there are definitely fewer losses. In fact, if you look at what we call chemical pregnancies, which are pregnancies that basically you you find that they have a positive pregnancy test, but you never see anything clinical, those can occur in up to 30% of all pregnancies. So some women test and you know it becomes probably more of a common thing these days but people sometimes test even before they've missed their first period And they know they're pregnant that early on. Well, at that early stage, there are good studies that show that over 30% of all those pregnancies end up in a very early pregnancy loss. And then the further you get along, so therefore, when you have like an ultrasound that shows a fetal heartbeat at around seven weeks, there is certainly a significant drop off in the miscarriage rate, particularly in younger women. And then as you get to the second trimester, that's much lower. And then certainly as we're talking about infant or you know basically 38 week pregnancies for example that is a significantly smaller fraction of losses so you know people can breathe that sigh of relief as they get further along but certainly very early on it's a very common phenomenon
1: so to keep it clear here let's let's just talk then about we'll just use the term pregnancy loss then so is anything associated with pregnancy loss preventable
0: Sure. Well, I think what this first sort of uh, breaks down to is talking about what is known, you know, as definitive causes of pregnancy loss. So there are some. Now, what is the most interesting fact about this? And in fact, whenever I meet with a couple, the first thing I tell them and the last thing I tell them is that we're going to do a full workup. But half the time throughout this workup, we may find absolutely nothing. And that's because many of the losses actually reflect back on the pregnancy and the embryo itself, as opposed to the host or the mother who's carrying that pregnancy. However, we do a full exhaustive workup to try to find those causes. And when we find some of those causes, yes, they are preventable. So, for example, we get blood chromosome testing on both the mother and the father we can actually be completely normal ourselves and sometimes have subtle rearrangements of chromo- of our chromosomes. So we can be normal, but because of those rearrangement of our chromosomes, that may lead us more likely to have miscarriages because we may have abnormal chromosomes in the embryos that we create with our partner. So certainly we wanna get chromosome testing on both partners, that's called getting a karyotype. We also want to assess the uterine cavity. So the mother's uterine cavity should be normal, but sometimes there are some abnormalities that can lead to a higher rate of miscarriage. For example, some of those would be like a submucous fibroid or a fibroid that grows inside the cavity of the uterus. Also, there can be some congenital or birth anomalies related to the uterus that may lead to a higher rate of miscarriage of which some of these, particularly one like the uterine septum that are completely repairable to get back to a normal rate of pregnancy loss as opposed to a much higher rate you may have when you have such a congenital anomaly. Also, some patients will have adhesions from prior surgery inside the uterus, perhaps the DNC of the prior loss, and they develop adhesions, which may lead them to a higher rate of miscarriage. And again, this is something once discoverable is treatable and often correctable to where we can significantly lower the risk of a miscarriage in a patient. Notice I don't say we can eliminate because you can never eliminate that risk altogether. There are some also immunologic tests, particularly the anti antibody, the lupus anticoagulant, beta-2 glycoprotein. Those are the three that are well-known, well-established causes of recurrent miscarriages or miscarriages. But there's this whole host of other sort of what we call thrombophilia panel, of which has led to a lot of discussion within our group, in our field, trying to understand, well, what is relevant, what is important in understanding what leads to higher rates of miscarriages. There's also some controversy within thyroid. We all check and look for thyroid and thyroid antibodies, and it's you know fairly thought to be that if you have a very uh, underactive hypothyroid with thyroid antibodies, that there may be a higher risk of miscarriages, and therefore treating that with supplemental thyroid medication may also lower that risk. And then finally, although pretty rarely seen, would be the patient that has like subtle diabetes, an elevated level of glucose. Um, it particularly in early conception can lead to higher rates of miscarriages. But once we look at all of these factors, we've only identified the etiology and probably a little less than half of all those patients with miscarriages. But those are really what are the well-established ones, and those are the ones that require you know some sort of more definitive steps towards treating them and, and taking care of them. There are. Some other things that are thought perhaps to go along with this as far as the recurrent miscarriages go. Some people look at progesterone levels or progesterone supplementation. Some people will sample the lining of the uterus looking for a chronic underlying infection. Uh, And some of these are a little less established and perhaps a little bit more controversial, but there are a whole host of these other type of things that may lead to miscarriages that that basically um, require investigation and Decisions as to what type of treatment the patient should undergo.
1: Are some of these more widely available than others, or, or are they all pretty common at this point? I'm I'm curious too because I know that the field of genetic testing has exploded in the last number of years, so I'm sure patients are probably curious about you know
0: availability. I, I think for the well-established tests, they are widely available. I mean, you know, basically a patient's OB/GYN and most certainly you know a reproductive endocrinologist is Easily able to undergo or, or to uh, take these tests from the patient and uh, investigate the cause of the miscarriages. Some of these other fringe things, some people—it's be- not so much that the test is not a- available as much as some people believe that they are a cause, and some people are not so sure, not convinced of the evidence. And there is definitely a lot of controversy around some of the different things that we test for in trying to understand the etiology of miscarriages. I think. What has really confused the field throughout the years is that we know that most miscarriages, most pregnancy loss of the embryo itself. Um, you know, For example, we actually did a study you know, a number of years ago where we looked at patients that had a fetal heart rate. Uh, not surprisingly found the older patients, you know, at, at seven weeks, older patients, meaning older than 40, probably had about a 20% still pregnancy loss rate at that point in time compared to patients under 35 where it was less than 5%. But when we looked at those pregnancy losses, and we looked at the chromosomes of those losses, we found that in the younger patients, about 80% of those were abnormal. And in the older patients, not surprisingly, 90% of those were abnormal. So what we're seeing here is that you have all of these pregnancy losses that are mostly something wrong with the embryo itself. And therefore, that's why you get a little confused with the test, because basically, it really isn't the host, it's really just the embryo itself. And we would venture to guess that in those very, very early chemical losses that I was talking about before, where we really don't have any tissue to test, those are probably even much more likely to be just something abnormal and gone awry with the early embryo development. You know, but there are also other factors. I mean, if you look at, as you were talking about and alluding to before with the genetic testing of embryos for chromosome abnormalities, we know that basically, by and large, if you take a chromosomally normal embryo and you put it back in, everything looking perfect, you have somewhere around a 50-50 shot, maybe up to 60% chance of having a baby out of that. But that means 40 to 50% of chromosomally normal embryos do not work. So that suggests that there's other factors that are involved that go along with the early implantation development of the embryo. And that probably also explains some things within miscarriages itself. Perhaps maybe there's a genetic disorder of defect that we don't know how to test for yet that is just so abnormal that it leads to a miscarriage or a loss of a pregnancy. In fact, if you look at birth defects, most of them are not chromosomal or, you know, a lot of them are multifactorial, you know, like looking at a big system like the heart and things like that. And maybe perhaps there's just such abnormalities within early heart development or circulatory development that it leads to a miscarriage early on and could still be a chromosomally normal baby. So that's why we think that there are so many losses that we can't explain. And that's why with many couples that have pregnancy losses, we really don't have an explanation. A very frustrating part for us, but certainly even more frustrating for the patient who's going through these miscarriages with only one question they want answered, which is why.
1: Yeah. And and again, the heartbreak of that is just almost unthinkable. I'm talking today with Dr. Steven Spandorfer. We're talking about pregnancy loss. Now you, as I mentioned earlier, are the current chair of the Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Special Interest Group for the American Society uh, Reproductive Medicine. Is there anything the special interest group is working on
0: currently? Well, I think basically, you know, a couple things that we sort of have spearheaded a little bit within our group. One of them is, you know, we're trying to obviously increase our membership of the greater ASRM body and have sort of set in motion what we call these sort of journal clubs, gathering groups of doctors from various parts of the country and even the world, basically, with our trainees and and the attendings discussing articles and relevant information. So sort of creating a buzz, a general overall excitement about the field. So that's one part of it. I think basically the other part that we're interested in, and hopefully we'll have, you know, be able to present some of this in the 2022, you know, ASRM conference that'll be next year, but basically wanted to sort of talk about the recurrent miscarriage, particularly workup. You know, we talked about what are the basics, but what if all the basics are normal? What do you do next? You know, and and there's a whole host of things from diet to supplements to other polymorphic sort of genetic markers. In other words, you know, are there genetic markers that maybe we carry that may make us more prone to having a miscarriage that perhaps are treatable by either supplements or... Maybe not treatable, but at least it's something we understand. So I think basically one of our goals is trying to understand a little bit more of what we don't know, you know, for that 50 to 60% of patient population that has the miscarriages and is asking why, and we're trying to come up with answers, at least that may not just give them answers, but really give them some sort of treatment that may give them some hope going forward. So I think those are the two exciting areas as to where we are now, but is a field as I like to describe it, that for as much science as we have and as much as we understand about, you know, our field and probably more than most subspecialties in medicine, there is so much more we don't understand and so much more we need to learn to help improve and uh, to help improve what we do and take away those situations, as you were describing, that, that ultimate heartbreak of somebody going through a pregnancy loss. You know, it, it is, um, it's, it's a terrible thing to have to deal with, that's for sure.
1: Well, I now have a verbal contract that you're going to come back this time next year, and you're going to give us the lowdown on what the SIG's been up to as we go into ASRM 2022. Do I have that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Fantastic. (laughs) Dr. Spandorfer, thank you for taking time out. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on again.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Please subscribe and rate this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today.
0: This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today Series Podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information
1: and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.